The following panel discussion, Fix It in Prep, The Value of Post-Production Artists Early in the Process, was recorded at the PGA East, produced by New York Conference on October 24th, 2015. The panel was sponsored by Nice Shoes, Filmlight and Sony. Thank you to the PGA for sharing this discussion with the Post-New York Alliance podcast. Hi. This is almost the last panel of the evening, last session of the evening. So you probably haven't heard this already, but please silence your cell phones. And there's absolutely no recording of this session. Thank you very much, guys. Welcome to one of the final sessions of this fabulous day that we call Produced by New York. Happy to have you all here. I'm Dana Kuznetskov. I'm the co-chair of Produced by New York. And this is just, it's an unbelievable thrill to have this panel ready. Fix it in post. Prep. The value of post-production artists early in the process. Come on. So, um, uh, um, before we start, I do want to um, thank Nice Shoes and Sony and Filmlight for sponsoring this panel. As you know, this event is only as good as our sponsors, and our sponsors are here. They're in the lounges, they're down at the Hudson Crossing, and if you haven't heard by now, over at the Hudson Crossing, we have some Time Inc. execs that are standing by to hear your pitches. So after this one, of course, go get to the Hudson Crossing and pitch Time Inc. What I'd like to do now is tell you how very fortunate we are to have Christine Prego here. She's the director of new business film and episodic at Nice Shoes. So please, let's welcome her. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be presenting today's conference with Sony and Filmlight. Producers are constantly and desperately striving to stay up to date with current post workflows and technologies. So we thought, what better way to share new post workflows and technologies with you than to sponsor a panel here at the Produced by New York conference? So, Welcome. Today you're about to learn from some of the industry's leading experts and hear their tips on how to save time, money, and headaches. For the past 10 years, we have seen technology change tremendously. Digitizing digibetas are no longer in the picture. So it's a very exciting time for post-production. Nice Shoes has been a leading color and finishing house for the past 20 years of high-end commercial production. But now we're expanding into design, visual effects, animation for feature films, episodic work, and all kinds of new media. So the artists at Nice Shoes really appreciate getting involved early in the process to help set looks with the producer and the DP to manage expectations and to help smooth out the workflow. So posts should no longer be an afterthought. So please come to our website at niceshoes.com, sign up for our mailing list, and we're always having all kinds of fun events. We recently sponsored a colors and cocktail event with the Producers Guild. It was a lot of fun. We're having a lot more programs throughout the winter, so sign up for our, our mailing list, and I will see you at Nice Shoes. Enjoy the panel, take notes, and together, we can eradicate the term, fix it in post. <laughs> and now what I'd like to do is introduce the session moderator, post-production supervisor extraordinaire. She's a board member of the Post New York Alliance and on the executive committee of the East Coast Producers Guild of America, Jennifer Lane. Thank you. 
Thank you, Dana. Thanks to PGA. I'm really, really excited about this panel. We could talk about post forever. Um, so um, fix it in prep, obviously, was fix it in post. And fix it in post, most people think visual effects. I would like to know how many people have had a project where visual effects came in under count or under budget on their project. Anyone? No, okay, so we're gonna talk about visual effects, <laughs> definitely, but I wanna hit a couple other topics because post-production covers sound and music and finishing and deliverables, and most, um, there are issues in all of those categories, color correction, beauty shots, and these wonderful individuals here will help talk about how the sooner you address issues, the less money you will spend when you fix it in post. And this advice, um, you know, uh, these wonderful individuals work in TV and commercial and film, but they can work for web series and documentaries. Anything that has a budget and anything where you do any post-production work, this, all this information can apply. I just want to quickly introduce everybody. Uh, this is Tim Squires, the fantastic editor who I'm actually currently working with on Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk has edited 12 films with Ang Lee, including Ice Storm, Wedding Banquet, Sense and Sensibility, and Life of Pi, which, for which he was nominated for many awards last year. Uh, next to him is Dan Schrecker, who is a visual effects supervisor, currently the senior visual effects supervisor at SIOP. He has worked with on many Darren Aronofsky films, including Fountain, Black Swan, Noah, and is currently working on Coen Brothers' Hail Caesar. Peter Seraf, who many know, because he is the chair of the PGA East and co-founder of Big Beach Films. His producer credits include many films such as Kings of Summer, Our Idiot Brother, Everything is Illuminated, Little Miss Sunshine, and the documentary Mandela. And next to Peter is Chris Ryan, a colorist at one of our sponsors, Nice Shoes, uh, known for his knowledge of film and pop culture. His colors, colored, done colorist work on commercials, TV, film, and web series and preservation work on such classics as Eight and a Half, Give Me Shelter, and Richard III. And then Brad Carpenter is next to him, TV post-producer giant. He's <laughs> been on every, uh, every amazing New York City TV show, Sex in the City, Queer Eye, The Straight Guy, 30 Rock, Bored to Death, Boardwalk Empire, the entire series of Nurse Jackie, and currently on vinyl. And then Allison Beckett who is a post-production supervisor, uh, worked last year on 100-Foot Journey and Kill the Messenger, served as the senior vice president of post-production at Weinstein Company, and survived. And, it's <laughs> <laughs> and the next projects coming up are The Promise and A Dog's Purpose. Is that the correct title? Excellent. So my first question for the panel but is, we have prep, we have post-production, and we have post-production. And now in the digital age, they all intertwine. But Peter and Brad always start in development. And I wanted to ask both of their opinions on, well, for Peter, since he's a producer, when you bring your post-production people in, whether it's an editor, post-supervisor, visual effects person, and Brad, when you, when you come in and how you do things. So whichever. Um, I like to think about post as early as possible. Um, uh, it, it's, um, uh, when I was growing up, my, my dad was a, a documentary filmmaker and he edited his own films. And so when I would go to visit my dad at work, it would be in, um, his chem editing table, 
um, making his movies. And so I was always, like post-production has been very much, was my introduction into the film business from, from childhood. And also sort of when I got into film, I, I started by making documentaries where so much of it is done in post-production. I've always, um, uh, I've loved that process and it's always been very much, it's sort of how I, how I learned about how movies are made. And, and I think that um, since it, it's an interesting approach because it, if you start from where everything ends up, you learn about what you need to get and what, what are the pieces that you need in order to be successful in the finishing of the film. Um, and since filmmaking is in so many ways um, putting together a giant puzzle, um, it's, it's great to think about where those final pieces are gonna go as early as you possibly can. And so one of the things, you know, one of the things that I learned a long time ago was um, it's great to get the editor's opinion on the script as early as you possibly can and get the editor talking to the director and the writer if that's possible, rather than hiring the editor. Um, you know, uh, people hire their editor you know, a week before you start shooting or even there are those films that, that think, oh, we'll save money and we'll bring the editor on after we've wrapped, um, which I never understand because have to look at all the dailies that that's going to take a certain amount of time. I don't, I don't understand how that saves money. But if you can get that perspective of that person who's going to be so critical in that, that final step of authoring the story, um, that's great. And even if you can bring in, there's so many times when if you're dealing with a movie that has visual effects, um, if you bring in your, your visual effects supervisor to, hey, how are we really going to do this? Let's not... Get, let's not shoot it and, and, and then figure out how it's going to work. Let's plan it with the people who are going to be creating so many of the, so much of the image, ultimately. Um, let's not just plan it even on set as we're doing it. Let's plan it in the writing process, if that's possible. So always thinking about the end as early as you can, um, I found has been um, the way to be as successful as you possibly can. That being said, there are many instances where I can think of where all of that gets thrown out the window. And, and, yeah, <laughs> um, and with, even with as much planning as possible, you end up um, changing things quite a bit um, during the film process and even sometimes radically rewriting movies. But, um, but I like to get everybody in the soup as early as possible. The first thing I do if I'm making a movie is I call Tim Squire's agent and, and he tells me that he's not available. <laughs> Keep trying. <laughs> well, just to build on what Peter said too, I think that, uh, well, first of all, the, I'm usually brought in right at the very beginning once a show uh, really gets brought to series. Uh, sometimes it's a pilot that's been picked up and gone to series. Sometimes I'm on the pilot already, in which case, they'll send me an early draft of the script and we'll begin those conversations. Um, but television is this, this train that once it leaves the station, it's just roaring along. So you have to plan on 10 or 12 or 
22 uh, little movies that are all going to be made simultaneously at the same time in various stages of development. So you have to plan a pattern budget that you think will hold true essentially for the needs of the show, um, what visual effect elements there might be necessary. Um, certainly, yes, the look of the show is important. What you're going to shoot on as far as camera. Once everything became digital, I found that it was already in my domain before we even shot it. It was already important to consider what kind of camera you're going to be working with, what that file-based workflow would be, what you're acquiring in. Like All of those things had to come into play because it would affect your budget and your schedule. Um, but then when the scripts come along, and especially in those instances, like a show like Bored to Death or Nurse Jackie, when it was primarily a character-driven show in its first conception, but now it starts reaching a little higher, to do effects that might be sort of invisible visual effects, but things you know are tricky, or you have to create a, a different location out of a New York location, or you have a guy hanging from a clock tower at the Williamsburg Bank building, and you're starting to try and figure out, well, what are the live action components going to be? What does the set have to be built? What kind of stunts are you going to do? What kind of rigging so you can minimize the wire removal? Um, and for me, if I'm being brought in as post and we're reaching up, then I'll bring in the post uh, uh, effect company and bring in those supervisors and bring them into the process and try and liaison with the crew when we're sort of, that train has already left the station. And then, of course, you're trying to plan ahead for those things that you know are going to come up, those things you know are just going to have to be fixed because of something that happened on the day. Um, you have to try and stash away a little pad somewhere to cope with those things. My favorite thing is to walk on a set for some other completely different version up to Video Village, and I'll hear, oh, Brad will fix it. <laughs> I'll be like, oh, hi, what's, what am I going to fix? And it's just something they discovered in that minute, and then hopefully you can provide the answer that will allow them to move on with the day. And I love being that guy with the good news, but when they have to do something that... Um, I know it's going to be a problem because there are too many variables or we won't be able to get the elements that we need for the final product, then I have to be the one to say, no, sorry, you, you need to fix this or do this in order for this to work because we can't just vis-effect that out without getting the elements that have to be behind it and all those different things. And no matter how knowledgeable the production people are that I work with, it's always pretty clear to me that they don't know what they don't know. They're not aware of what that is. So that's why I think it's always important to get your post person involved as quickly as possible in this process because you don't know what that thing is. Post is like there's something beyond the veil and they just, it's a mystery to them. It's magic, it's wizardry. And they think you can fix anything. And or they don't know that sometimes you can do things that can make their job so much easier and make their day go faster um, and allow them to move on quickly or save them money. So. You have to bring in that post person in order to know ahead of the time what those things are, so you can plan, uh, you know, plan properly. Um, Tim, thank you. I wanted to ask about your process on Life of Pi, since you were brought in so early before the film. Yeah, I kind of started working on Life of Pi about a year before we started shooting. I was doing something else too; it wasn't my full-time job. Uh, but um, you know, that film, I mean, we sh it was shot in 3D, which is hard on a wave tank, which is hard involving animals and, and kids and new actors and all of, all the things you're not supposed to do in a movie and we did them all in the same movie and on a on what was a pretty tight schedule and so 
you know, sometimes directors go and just shoot a bunch of stuff. You get coverage and you'll figure it out later. But we knew we couldn't do that. We knew we were not going to be able to go in and get a bunch of coverage. And so as a necessity, um, we decided to do a, a very elaborate previs. So the previs, it started as a necessity, but then as, as Ang started working in it, and we, we had a, a previs expert, and then I was consulting on it, and we figured out all these things we could do. And partly it was a matter of what, what to do to make it more visually interesting, uh, how to tell the story visually. And as we figured things out in previs, we went back and wrote them into the script. And then as we changed the script, we went back and wrote them, you know, worked them into the previs. And the two fed off of each other. And the whole previs process, it's actually, I did a full sound edit to it. We had over an hour's worth of stuff. And I did a pretty involved sound edit with music. And some of that music stayed in as temp all the way to the very end. And it informed the movie. I mean, it, that previs became the, the starting point for everyone. Not that we had stuck to it, because we didn't. We didn't, you know, sometimes there were a few things that turned out to be impossible. But um, at least with something like that, you have to have a plan. And so being involved with that plan, you know, as, as editor, uh, and you, you mentioned getting editors involved in script, because, you know, six months after you finish shooting, any problem is now my problem. You know, everybody else, everybody else is gone, and now it's an editorial problem. And so your editor, good chance, has done this before and is able to anticipate things. And it's, it's you know, it depends on the relationship between the director and, and the writer and the editor. But when that works well, often an editor can really help you find, find issues and find solutions to things. And, you know, some things you can't save in, in post. Some things, sometimes I'm just finding the least bad way of getting through something. You know, this scene sucks, but we have to keep it. <laughs> um, so yeah, the, the whole previs process on that was great. The other thing I did on Life of Pi was there are a bunch of, um, it's a story where it's set in the present, but a person is relating stories from, from years earlier. And the transitions in and out of those are, we, are not, not cuts or dissolves. We did more complicated things than that. And it was my job to think up what those were going to be. So that involved a lot of experimenting. And uh, I went to location, and you know, one of the sets was built. And I shot a bunch of footage and you know, came up with all these things to propose to production for how to, how to do these transitions. Now, something like that's not, and then I was on set when we shot them and said, OK, we need a blue screen here. We need to, to you know, kind of make sure everything would work. That's not always the editor's job. I have a long history with Ang Lee and, and invented a lot of stuff like that for, um, for Hulk, which is a film we did about 15 years ago. So uh, he, he just decided that was going to be my job. But uh, um, I also wanted to ask about setting looks before a production starts. So this is a question for Chris and your experience with filmmakers uh, coming to you and you know, the testing process and how that is involved with, you don't want to just pick up a camera and just start shooting and hope for the best. <laughs> well, I think that it's really important to get up front and early in the process, figure out what you want your piece to look like. And we've found a lot of success with that with filmmakers. I did a short film recently where the filmmakers had gone into it this idea that they had a very specific look they wanted to do. They shot it that way. They you know, had references, we discussed it early on, and then after doing the entire film that way, 
uh, in an early test, they decided that it really wasn't working and that they were missing the emotion of what the original, what like a more saturated look would have been in this case. And so, you know, we try to get involved early on with look development because I find that, you know, looks, especially, you know, as you know, you were saying with when you're involved as an editor, it's the same thing. It's filmmaking is very different today than it was, you know, even 10 years ago because the digital world and everything we can do, it, it's there's not really that separation anymore between production and post-production as much. It's it's a it's a giant you know melting pot of things that you can do. And you know, it's not like, you know, when Tim was sitting there doing his thing on the set and he says, well, I'm an editor. Well, you're a filmmaker as well at that point. And if you're doing VFX, if you're doing color. And so as producers, you have to be aware of that whole process, that it's not just like, I'm doing the production, I'm producing the production. And then, as you said, some magical little person in a box is going to do the post-production <laughs> for me and fix it all. It, the, the more you get these people involved, they're all artists, they're very experienced, get them involved early in the process. And for look development especially, we found that looks really affect the emotion of the piece. Looks affect, you know, how you respond to something. You know, you can take the same footage and do it four different ways and the audience is gonna respond differently. The same way an ed editor can cut something in a different way. So being involved early so the decision makers can actually, you know, see what you're thinking of. If you're a producer and you're working with your director and you know you have some ideas and you want to work with a colorist or any anyone doing the looks, get them involved early on so then the other people can see it and you sort of buy into it. You know, I remember a story I read years ago that like Young Frankenstein, that's how they did Young Frankenstein. Young Frankenstein, Mel Brooks wanted it to look like, you know, Son of Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein. And they spent months doing film tests, lighting tests, to actually replicate the look of those old Frankenstein movies, and they did an amazing job. And that look sort of impacts you as an audience when you watch Young Frankenstein, because it's a hysterically funny movie, but would it be as good if it was just some generic black and white thing? It's like the way the lighting was done, the way the sets were done, the way it was shot. So that's sort of what I find is very important. Excellent. Allison. I wanted to ask you about when you're brought into the process, I know it's different for every film, the experiences, your experiences with being brought in early to review the script and budget to when you weren't and what happened. <laughs> well, I would say, you know, my experience ranges from being at the studio where I was the post, you know, executive on a project. So in that case, I would be brought on, you know, early in the script phase, budget, talking to the filmmakers, what's needed and because of that background I think I love trying to be brought in as early as possible now that I'm freelance to do a similar kind of role so whenever possible I try to you know speak up early try to get hired early on a project so I can have that sort of involvement and I like to think it's helpful um, I think it's a benefit to producers if they can have someone who is sort of solely focused on that portion of the process to start conversations around things for them because as you all know producing a film, you've got so many different departments and factors that you have to worry about. And so to have someone who, you know, is more narrowly focused on, hey, let's think about music, let's think about um, all the aspects of the post budget down to such small things as, you know, oh, are we shooting this um, project in multiple languages with lots of group scenes? Do we think we're going to need group loop ADR actors who can speak multiple languages? How many people is that going to be? Are there kids as well? You know, oh, you have a loop group budget that's only 10 grand. Well, that's probably not going to cover three languages and five kids as well. So having someone who's got, who's lived through post-production, who's got that specialty 
background to analyze your budget and your script um, before the budget's locked and hopefully, uh, hopefully get the money allocated in the way um, that makes the most sense, but at least have everybody on the same page before you go and shoot the movie about what your possibilities are going to be in post. So that, you know, I think if everybody goes into post with the same um, expectations and knowledge of what the boundaries are, you're going to be much more successful satisfying your director, satisfying your editor. Um, so it's really about being a point of, uh, you know, focus of this area so that you can talk to the producers and the director about it. So, yeah, I love to review the budget, the script, and then start thinking about who, you know, who should be part of the crew and talk to the filmmakers about who they want to work with because that will, of course, um, affect the budget. And I think more and more often you're hiring your post team in pre-production. I think, you know, all the movies I've been involved with, um, we've hired the post team in pre-production and it's especially busy in New York at the moment. Thank goodness for that. And, uh, you know, to get the people you want, you need to reach out to them early, you need to plan it into their schedules, you need to get them excited about the project, and again, to have someone specifically focused on post-production to make those phone calls, keep that conversation going with that crew, that post-crew during your whole shoot, to keep them engaged and keep them committed, um, I think is helpful. So that's, that's sort of the, the way I like to approach things, is a, is a support to the the producers and the director to keep the focus here. You know, there's um, music issues you need to think about before you shoot anything from obviously clearance, don't shoot any music that's not cleared, uh, to, uh, you know, simple things like, okay, are we shooting a big party scene where everybody's dancing to a track? Does the director want to play this track over the loudspeaker to keep the energy up? And just to think through and make sure everybody's really thinking, okay, well, that means the sound that you record during that scene is really not going to be any good because there's all the music blaring over it. So you're going to have to do Foley and sound effects and, you know, are for the group, you know, um, emotions and everything. So just to make sure that uh, everybody's on board with the choices that are being made, thinking through to the ramifications for post. So it's not just um, visual effects, it's ADR, it's music, it's like we were talking about the look for the DI, the format you're shooting, the way you're processing the dailies, um, you know, how the editor is going to be getting the footage, uh, how you're going to want to preview or do early screenings, the resolution you want to work in. There's a lot of things that need to be thought about in pre-production that can be helpful to have someone um, solely focused on. Now the big ticket question, visual effects, Mr. Schrecker. Uh, visual effects is often is what has to get fixed in post. And I have never been on a production that didn't add visual effects, and I'm sure everybody in the room has found the same situation. Uh, in today's world with digital editing, people do split screens to enhance performances, and that's never budgeted. Or you think a scene with a TV in the background is one shot, and then you cut back and forth, and guess what? It's 12. So in your research and in your experience, I know you've done some, a survey recently about your perspective on involvement with visual effects supervisors and producers and not involvement and how the numbers change. Um, yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, I, uh, in getting ready for this panel, I did a little survey just to sort of see what we're talking about here in terms of numbers, actually, and try and put together some data 
as best I could as like an amateur uh, statistician. And so I reached out to a bunch of post supervisors in town who I've worked with, uh, with some simple questions that ranged from, what was your VFX budget when you started shooting? What was your VFX budget when you finished? What was your shot count when you started? What was your shot count when you finished? And then some various factors. Um, did you have a post uh, VFX supervisor on set? Was there a VFX producer on production? Did you have storyboards? Um, and I, I'm sorry, I wish I had like a PowerPoint, but if you'll excuse me, I have some notes. And I'll tell you what some of this, these numbers were. For what they're worth, it was a pretty small sample size, but you sort of started to see some trends come out. So basically, we asked these questions um, and then calculated basically the percentage of change. So if you had 50 visual effect shots to start and it grew to 100, that's 100% change. Same thing with the budgets. And then threw out the highest and lowest figures because I've heard that's what you do when you do surveys. <laughs> sort of help keep the curve right. And what we found was that on average, and let me step back for a sec, um, this was just for films, just for the sake of keeping it apples to apples. I think there was maybe one or two uh, TV miniseries, like a three or four part miniseries because that was in the same world, but it's too hard, I think, to compare an episodic because I don't know if you should do the whole series or each episode, so we sort of limited to that. So on average, regardless of any other factor, a visual effects budget grew 175% from prep to post, and the shot count grew 289%. And the reason it's important to look at shot count is because the shots are the unit by which you measure the amount of work that you need to do for visual effects. So in the same way you look at shoot days or something like that, this is the, the unit of work by which you kind of can judge this stuff. So, so that was the basic thing, that the budgets just about doubled and the shot counts just about tripled. And then you started to look at some of the, the factors that affected this um, and found that in general, the budgets stayed, that range of 175% to 200% stayed about the same regardless of what the factors were. If you brought in a visual effects supervisor, your budget stayed lower than it would have if you hadn't, but not by a huge amount. But where what we saw was that the shot counts grew substantially in certain cases. So when you don't have a visual effects supervisor on set, the shot count grew on average 440%, which means there are four times as many visual effects shots as you originally planned. Um, when you don't speak into what Tim, had, what Tim said about uh, storyboards and stuff, Without storyboards or previs or some sort of concept art, shot count grew again over 400%. Um, we looked at other things we looked, and this was sort of irregardless of budget of the project or visual effects budget. So we were looking at shows and, pro and movies that were in the million, two million range up to over 50 million. And it sort of didn't seem to matter too much what that number was or what the overall effects budget was. Um, other things we found, that 92% of projects got tax incentives for visual effects, which wasn't surprising, mainly in New York, some in Canada. Um, we found that very few projects uh, had a visual effects producer on the production side. So 83% of projects didn't have a visual effects producer. And again, with no visual effects producer, the shot count grew substantially. 
Um, and then the last thing we looked at was just uh, what kind of project it was, whether it was a studio project or an independently financed. And what we found was that, again, the budgets stayed in that same 200% growth, um, but that on an independently financed film, again, the shot count grew probably close to 400% as opposed to about 250 for a studio. Um, so that was sort of it. There were a couple of other questions we asked the post supervisors, like how did this project make you feel on a scale from one to 10? <laughs> and it didn't affect, strangely enough, it didn't matter that much how all of this, these numbers worked out. You know, some were tens, some were twos, and it didn't can sort of find any correlation there. So, anyways, that was sort of the the numbers we found. I don't, you know, want to draw conclusions because it's a pretty small sample size, and I'm not a statistician, but you can sort of draw your own conclusions. But Dan, doesn't it? The way I thought it worked was even when your shot count goes up, like it doubles. I thought you just call your vendor and you say, I only have the same well, amount man. of money, so the budget shouldn't go up. Yeah, yeah that, well, that's, that's yeah, of course. Oh, okay. That's, that's exactly, I well, make sure that, I was getting that right. No, well, that's why the shot count doubles <laughs> and the budget doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> so let me ask, regarding visual effects, because there are giant-sized films and there are smaller films, certain films won't be able to afford having an on-set visual effect producer, visual effects supervisor, for the whole film, what is the suggestion to the filmmakers who can't necessarily afford that? Is there, you know, you've hired them by specific days, you at least have conversations with the vendors, what is your suggestion? I, I mean, I think the same thing that everyone's been saying, which is get a supervisor or producer involved early on to look at that and talk through stuff. And, you know, generally, they'll be able to look at a project and look at the work and say, you should have me or someone else there on set for that day to make sure that gets shot in a proper way so that when you get into post, it's not gonna be uh, an issue. But you know, I think the bigger issue is sort of like estimating, and this, uh, this is something I heard in doing the survey, was underestimating the shot count. You know, exactly what you were saying, which is there's a monitor and there's a, page of dialogue and it's like, okay, there's a monitor, so that's a monitor shot we have to do, but it's a page in the script, so it's gonna be 10 shots, 10 cuts or whatever, and you're gonna end up with five monitor shots, and you get to post, and all of a sudden you have five more shots than you planned. And, you know, and it's hard because, you know, I know that, and Tim knows that, and everyone kind of knows that, and when you look at the page, you say, there are five shots here, and then, you know, in trying to get the number down to where it needs to be, it'll be like, well, you know, it'll be two, and kind of bring the shot count down, and then get a number approved, and then you're in post, and it's back up to five. And sometimes, you know, in terms of the shot count, sometimes something is cut a certain way, and then I change the cut, and what was one shot is now two shots. It's easier, it's less screen time, and yet now it's two shots instead of one. Why in the world would that be more money? It should be less money, because it's and sometimes it is. I mean, there's sometimes, a, there's, it, is. sometimes it is. There's an economy of scale with that kind of thing. So, you know, it's not always five is going to be five times as much as one. Yeah. There are $5,000 shots, and there are shots you can buy a really nice house with. Right, exactly. And there are $500 shots, too. So. Um, Allison, I wanted you to touch on this experience with the beauty fixes we discussed. 
Um, so Beauty Which Fixes, one? for those who so don't know. So many, every single film, Beauty Fixes. Yeah, so if, for those who don't know, Beauty Fixes are hair and makeup fixes generally. And most features will do a hair and makeup test, or should, and if you don't, you should, to see how the hair and makeup looks, especially with digital, because you'll see much more detail. You'll see hairlines, you'll see makeup blotches, that kind of thing. And there are always beauty fixes. Some actors have them in their contract, and somebody forgets to budget that. So, um, Some actors even have a specific vendor in their contract who you have to use, who know how to make them the most beautiful them. Yeah. So no, I think the, uh, the story that I'm going to tell is you know, a project that everyone knew that the actress did not want to wear colored contacts for creative reasons. She felt like it you know, prevented her from giving um, her best performance, which I completely understand, but nobody went through the next step of saying, okay, well now we need to test in pre-production changing the color of her eyes. And how is that going to look? And if you've ever tried to do it, um, you'll know it's a difficult thing to get someone to not look like a demon when you're changing the color of their eyes because it's something, you know, the light as it shines in someone's eyes really gives them their personality and a lot of the performance is in the eyes. So it turned out to be um, a very difficult process. Hundreds of shots, of course, that were not budgeted for. Um, you know, they, they knew they were going to do it, so there was an allocation, but nowhere near the amount of money that we ended up having to spend. And it was a very complicated process in conjunction with the DI facility to do a little bit in visual effects and then working with the color correction because once we changed the look, again, which wasn't tested in pre-production or production, uh, once we changed the look, the work of the visual effects was suddenly amplified back to this demon look again, which was not what we were going for at all. So I think, you know, doing a full test, you know, not just testing the visual effect, but taking it into a DI um, environment and seeing how that work is gonna get affected when you do put the color on it too, um, it would have been a great thing to have done earlier. Um, and yeah. It would save a lot of money if you can do testing. The test might cost something, but it's, you're going to save so much more money down the line to spend the money now, to spend the money to have somebody consult for a couple days or a week is going to save you much more money down the line. Um, and also get maybe a better result in the end because I think when you leave it for post, sometimes you're suddenly up against a release date or some other hard and fast deadline that you have to meet and there isn't the time to do as many tests as you want. You know, you can't bid it out to four vendors and have them do a test and pick the best one because you need these shots done in two weeks for your DI to hit your dates. And so I think creatively as well, you can get a better result if you plan it earlier. Um, and I want to touch on visual effects that are not planned, such as, um, well, makeup fixes is one, but location fixes or split screens. Just ask the panel about their experiences with certain shots that weren't planned that maybe could have been planned if you have stories specific about those kind of shots. I mean, the whole split screen for performance thing, you know, it's something that it, editors have kind of caught on to recently. And, you know, the number of them I've done per film has gone from you know, four to 10 to 60 to who knows how many on this next one. Uh, and once directors learn that you can actually do that, Ang Lee was so excited when he saw that I could, uh, you know, something was wrong with this person. I said, oh, I think I can fix that. Um, so that's becoming. You know, it's, it's still visual effects, but it's really just becoming editing now. 
edit this part of the frame and this part of the frame, and and it doesn't look like it doesn't look like a visual effect at all. That's becoming very very common, um, and uh, you know is a kind of a fun new tool, but then it falls into visual effects. And if you have a film that doesn't have a visual effects department, then it can suddenly become a, a considerable burden on, on an editorial staff that wasn't set up to accommodate these extra 60 shots that you're doing. Yeah, I, I would agree. And, and also speaking to the idea of the visual effects department, one of the things that came up um, in talking to people was people saying like, I'm never gonna do a project like that again without two or three in-house people. So a crew of artists who are working for production as opposed to the facility who are there to handle those things that come in and come up and they can do stuff, uh, you know, and sometimes a little more quickly, a little more cheaply than, you know, a visual effects facility that has a big pipeline that's gonna do big water that that you can't do with a small team in house and and so some of those things that you're talking about editing uh, split screens and clean up in backgrounds and stuff like that is you know sometimes handled by that sort of team which will Chris have you done um, any experience with day for night and I wanted to know if you could explain what that is well classic day for night obviously would be an older film like that blue filter that they put on to make it look like nighttime. Uh, the thing I've run into with day for night, a lot of times it's just, it's because of the limitations of the production. You can't shoot at night, you can't light it correctly, whatever it is, there's a lot of different reasons why you need to shoot during the daytime and it has to look like nighttime. And again, and it's usually if you can come in early enough, if you know you're not gonna be able to shoot at nighttime, uh, and you can come and have a discussion with the artists involved, and it's not just the colorist; it's VFX artists, et cetera, because there's a number of things involved with that. It's, you know, a lot of times, you know, you're dealing with what, what time of day should you shoot? Well, obviously, if you're shooting in early in the day or in the end of the day, you have long shadows. How do you gonna have long shadows at night unless you have a light source? You know, th th these are th all important things. And a lot of times people, you know, I'll give them a look which I know looks like nighttime, because I've gone out, like I, one of the things I did early on in my career is I would go out at different times of the day and try to like see really what things look like. You know, like how like early, early morning is very, very blue, you know, or how, you know, the, so someone will think a morning light is always yellow and golden when it's not. Or what does the nighttime look like? You know, the whole thing with your eyes have something called visual purple, which actually creates the effect of this purplish blue cast but it's not really blue like a true day for night. It's a sort of very grayish blue. It's a low light, a dim look. And then you show that to someone and they, they don't think it looks good. It doesn't look like nighttime to them because they have this like fantastic image of what nighttime should look like. So usually it's a matter of you know talking to everybody involved. And VFX is very important in that as well because even the best day for night, you can't do anything about skies a lot of times. You're gonna be replacing skies. Um, how are you gonna be replaced skies? You have to, having a VFX supervisor on the set, it, because again, you can't just imagine you're gonna shoot into something with a bright sun and then slap a sky on with some stars and make it look real. Because a, you know, a good VFX supervisor will tell you that that's not going to work. You know, there's where are you gonna create the sort of cutoff point, et cetera. So you know, it, those kind of things are, are really important to discuss with the artists that who have experience with this and know what things look like and know what's gonna look real. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to touch on clearances, because clearances becomes an issue that often has to get fixed in post. Clearances could be anything from a poster on a wall to a music. 
situation. And Brad, I wanted to know if you could share the parody story. Which story? You, the parody. That's oh, the parody. Oh, sure. Unhappy-ish, um, um, which was a very fun show on Showtime this last year. Uh, we were sort of skewering a lot of big, iconic commercial things that took place in the advertising industry. And there was an episode where uh, the, the female lead was dealing with her depression. She decided that she was going to go on antidepressants. And there was this whole um, uh, Frozen theme that went through the whole episode. She was ranting about Frozen. And so finally, for the final number, um, we did this parody fantasy uh, uh, for Let It Go, you know, when she's on the hillside and going to the castle and she creates all this magic thing, although the, the number was called Lexapro. And so it was all about the magic of going on this antidepressant and pills came out of her hands and flung around and put her in a gown and transformed a castle. We filmed at Ohiga Castle. It was great, but in, in order to prepare for this day, we had to create a version of Let It Go that we knew we could get away with with Disney. And so we, you know, it's almost mathematical as far as how different the melody has to be. But then, you know, we were working very closely with an attorney um, through all of this who was very strict. And it wasn't just that the melody had to be just different enough, but the lyrics also had to be the right type of parody. You couldn't just abscond with this concept and then put whatever words it had to more deliberately parody the song that it was based on. So we actually had uh, the writer on the show created a whole different set of lyrics when we found that didn't work. And then of course, this all had to be done in time for us to rehearse and pre-record with the actress and then get there on the day um, for playback and make sure everything was going. We were watching very carefully and um, all of a sudden I'm noticing on this very very close shot with her, we're very tight on her face. Um, the creator of the show thought he could just get away with doing her once that sounded just like the melody. <laughs> and I was with um, you know, my sound people and they were looking at me and I was like, hold on one second. And then I like ran down to the piece of the set and I just went up to the director and I said, listen, you just have to do at least one where she just says that line the way that we had planned. And he was like, really? Sure. And he was like, yeah, yeah, please. And, and so, so it was like, okay, we're going one more time. And then we did it. And she did that way. And thankfully, we had that because, of course, that's the version we had to use for the final. So it was really having to pay attention because, like Tim says, later it's going to be your problem if you don't have that thing that you have to use that the lawyer says you need to have. I worked on a film where a lead actress ad-libbed a song, three lines of a song, in every take of the scene, and nobody said anything, and it was in the middle of the scene, and we couldn't cut around it, and that cost 10 grand, just because she ad-libbed two or three wildly singing. So music, you really need to pay attention to music clearance and not assume it'll be cleared later. Spoken lyrics are still a problem, right. and everything must be cleared in advance. Spoken lyrics and dialogue are something that the writers are often just not aware. Of. It's like, no, you can't just quote that much of it. You know, that's going to be a publishing that we're going to have to pay for. Get an alt, you know. Do you want to talk about Little Miss Sunshine? The music? Oh, Little Miss Sunshine. Well, Little Miss Sunshine was, um, you know, all the talk about planning ahead. Um, that, um, that movie, the, um, there's a, in the climax of the movie, the, the little girl played by Abigail Breslin, um, Olive, uh, dances uh, in a, 
in a beauty contest to a song that um, nobody expected her to dance to. And we, we planned it. We, she practiced for weeks doing the choreography. Um, and we filmed it to a song by ZZ Top called Give Me All Your Lovin'. And um, as we were cutting the movie and working with it, you know, when we got to that climax moment of the, of the, of the movie, um, that song just wasn't quite working. It just didn't have the right feel and the right energy for it. And so we started playing around. You know, it's like, well, is that going to work to replace it? We started playing around with different songs. Um, and... Um, and ultimately, we we completely changed the song, um, and did it all in in editorial. Uh, so uh, uh, she ends up, you know, dancing to Super Freak, um, uh, which I'll, I will always say is the best eighty thousand dollars I ever spent was licensing <laughs> that song. Um, but but if you look at it, if you look at the movie closely, um, we were able to cut her dance pretty well to. To, to a completely different song, um, although thankfully most most um, rock and pop is all four four rhythm, so it, it's it's easier. <laughs> um, but uh, but if you if you look at it um, pretty closely, if, when, whenever we cut to the audience, the people in the back who are clapping are completely off. Yeah. <laughs> um, before we get to questions, I also wanted to talk about deliverables. So every studio, every foreign delivery has different deliverables. And deliverables, when you're on an independent film and you don't know who you're going to sell it to, is something you need to think about, certainly. And as the digital revolution changes every week, the deliverables change. Netflix requires something like 6K deliverables on... Uh, uh, and nobody can screen 6K on a television. So it's very strange. So I wanted to know any experience you guys have had with problems with deliverables or non-expectations or where you have been involved in, you know, thinking about them in advance. Fucking nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> Get a good post-supervisor. Plan ahead. <laughs> it's a, for television, that's really... That changes depending on the network. Um... Showtime, because they don't have the internal structure to create what they want, they, uh, I mean, what they need in all those territories, you actually, as the production, have to create all that in advance. Um, and um, they also have this thing that they do called free TV, which is not when it goes into syndication or something, it's an alternate element. Poor Jay Rubin is shaking his head because they had to deal with this at, at PostWorks. It's the biggest headache in the world. Um, but you have to know ahead of time that you're going to have to provide a completely sanitized version of your show as a deliverable along with everything else. And it doesn't count as a delivery until all those various pieces have been made. Um, and Unhappyish, that was the most foul language television show, I think, ever. And doing a free TV version of that was just hellacious. But then there, the Netflix factor is a huge factor because they're such a... Uh, technology company that now that some of these shows, rather than going into syndication, they go into a secondary release um, on Netflix in some form, and their QC standards are much, much higher, and the uh, music and effects track that you have to supply them for foreign, foreign has always had a much higher level of QC than domestic, but their standards are just crazy. So then we suddenly found out, actually midway through delivering uh, season six of Nurse Jackie, that they had made a deal at Showtime 
or, or Lionsgate did with Netflix. And so suddenly we had these new standards that had to be put into place sort of retroactively. And that involved with all those deliverables that you send to Showtime, all of those deliverables being sent back to the facility to be fixed with new problems that were discovered with these new standards. So it, it's, and it's changes. It changes every network and every year with every show. It's really, it is, it is a big headache. The film, that, the film that Jen and I are working on now, we shot at 120 frames a second in 3D. So we're delivering, I mean, we can do 120, 60, 24, 2D, 3D, 2K, or 4K. All those combinations are possible, and we don't know yet, from a marketing standpoint, which ones we're going to do. But you know, just in prep, I mean, part of the reason to shoot in uh, 120 rather than 60 was to be able to have, be able to generate a 24 easily without just shooting at 48, which we didn't want to do. So, you know, in addition to all the other deliverable issues, we've got all these other variables because there's, there's so many different versions of this film. And we had that, we had many meetings and much planning just what's going to be technologically feasible. And then we have to consider what's going to be possible in theaters by the time we come out, which will be next November. It is amazing to think about. I mean, when we talk about like the beauty pass, formats that we can do like the digital revolution was supposed to make things and in so many ways these things that weren't possible and that, that made things very complicated it's made one thing easier which is that we used to you know shooting on film you'd have four three and we'd have to protect on the top and bottom of frame for the air airplane version <laughs> and now everything is hd and has a different format so that's actually gotten kind of nice we still and, do have to do our 178 um yeah. Past, but I'm shooting a movie on 35 millimeter film right now, and I got to tell you, it's wow. quite refreshing. <laughs> What's it like? <laughs> it's kind of amazing. There's a, there's an incredible discipline on set. You don't just roll the camera like crazy. Right. Oh yes, you burn a lot more film in digital. So, are there any nightmare stories that you want to share as far as when you were, you did not bring in post people in time or you were not brought in time? Um, just sort of as a little life lesson. Share an entertaining story. Yeah, great. <laughs> <laughs> Which is probably not ever going to hopefully happen to anybody because it was a very unique situation where I was working on a 3D. Um, well, I was working on an animated feature, which then became a 3D animated feature because it was going on for so long um, that animation, you know, all, all animated films at the point that we were finishing it also have to be released in 3D to be viable in the market. So it was an animated feature that was not intended to be 3D in its inception. And something that I realized during the process as we decided we were going to convert it to 3D is to really make an impact in 3D, you have to have something that is contained within the frame on all four sides to really be able to pop it out of the frame, right? So if you wanna see a, a ball coming towards the audience and really pop it, all around the ball has to be contained within the frame. It can't be the ball coming from the top of the frame where part of it's out. So this animated film, unfortunately, wasn't designed that way from the get-go. So there were maybe four moments in the entire movie that we could pop out like that, which was not acceptable as a 3D experience. So we had to come up with a way to um, make it more exciting. And so what we did was for the 2D version, the um, aspect ratio was 235 
for the 3D version, we made it 185. So we put that 235 image in a 185 frame so there was black on the top and bottom, which gave us a little more room so that we could add extra animation to the top and bottom and pop mm -hmm. things out over. Mm -hmm. So it was a, um, you know, the great idea of a wonderful 3D producer who I brought onto the project and I was just killing myself trying to figure out how we were going to satisfy the demand that I was given, which was make it more exciting. So thank God this guy had this you know, brilliant idea and um, that's what we did and it got released in both formats. So uh, I would say the moral of the story is think about if you want your movie to be 3D before you start framing it. <laughs> I think that's probably pretty basic and again hopefully you won't be in this sort of conversion um, world like I was, but sometimes you know, the decision gets made afterwards and you want to do a 3D conversion, so it's just something to think about. I guess we should do questions. Oh, okay. Any other fun stories? And I can tell a story of, again, really not planning ahead, um, but where um, we made a movie, and it was a very low-budget movie called Safety Not Guaranteed. That the entire budget of the movie was seven hundred fifty thousand dollars, and but it had this little sci-fi element. It was a story of a guy who believed that he could time travel, and these people. Oh, I'm sorry. It was a story about a guy who who believed that he could he could travel in time. He took out a uh, 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 one ad saying uh, uh, that uh, wanted somebody to travel back in time with me. Um, uh, uh, I've only done this once before, uh, safety not guaranteed, and um, which was a real ad that ran, and this was the story of the people who went to find him. And, and the way the, the film was written and the way it was shot was that um, at the end of the movie, he took this one journalist onto this boat that he'd built as a time machine, and it didn't work, and, um, and it all collapsed, and they were actually arrested for other things that they'd done, and he went to jail, and it was kind of, it was a nice story about these people, but it, it kind of, it had a somewhat downer of an ending, but it was, it worked on one level over another, and it's actually, and that was the version of the movie that we submitted to Sundance and got in, and then as we continued to work on the movie, we realized that the, the, the ending just wasn't having the impact that we wanted, um, and, um, and we, somebody had the crazy idea that, well, well what, if the, what if the time machine worked, um, which completely rewrote the movie, um, but we decided to try it, and we tried it, and lo and behold, it it, it gave the movie a whole um, different kind of magic at the end. It suddenly became kind of a, a Peter Pan kind of movie that if you believed hard enough, you could make something happen. And it worked in a great way, but, um, and using a great visual effects vendor um, with about 10 days before we had to have the movie ready for Sundance, we were able to um, make this, uh, this boat disappear and the, completely rewrite the movie in the editing room uh, without having to go shoot another frame. Um, so that was, a, that was a case of everything that I'm talking about. Like, I believe fully that the more you can plan ahead, the better, but that was a case where the magic of visual effects without any pre-planning um, and without any of the time um, managed to completely change a movie in what I think was a great way work ultimately. And one little story I want to touch on, because we haven't really discussed sound, is the planning of where you're recording scenes, besides blasting music in a dance number. Um, when you scout, please make sure you visit the 
where you're going to shoot the same day of the week you're going to shoot because you go visit on a weekend and the airport is nearby, but you don't hear the, the airplanes. And lo and behold, you go there on a Tuesday and you're in the flight pattern. And so I've been on, a, <laughs> had to re-loop entire scenes because of... Yeah, the other mistake people make is they think, okay, this will be our cover set. And you go visit it during the during a, on a day when it's not raining and it's fine. And then okay, it's going to rain. We go to the cover set and it's a tin roof and and, uh -huh. and you're going to have to loop everything you shoot there. Um, okay, we're going to take questions now. Got microphones, so just wait for the microphone. Hi, thanks for your uh, it's amazing panel. I'm Vimy Wang from a production company based in Greenpoint. Uh, my question will be a little bit like, how do you judge or how do you see the visual effects design uh, even before pre-production, like the pitching period? Um, another question regarding to the recently very booming technology, virtual reality. How, how do you think the technology going to boom in the future and have you involved into this uh, new technology? Thank you, two questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, as far as how do you sort of judge your, the visual effects early on, um, you know, in design, it's, it's, it's working with the rest of the, the team. So the director, the production designer, the DP, everyone who's involved, you know, anything that we do is part of the, the greater whole of the whole film and has to work within that. So, you know, you always start with the script and then you figure out what it's going to look like and how it should feel. And then from there, figure out how you accomplish that. Um, and then there, so. Everyone, you know, you have to have a plan and everyone has to agree on the plan. That this is how we're gonna, you know, these scenes we're shooting in the wave tank, these shoots we're shooting in the ocean, you know, the ones that we shoot in the ocean have to be, we need these kinds of things to, to block backgrounds and things like that. So, you know, the first thing you do just in a script is you kind of go through and go, how are we gonna do that? How are we gonna do that? And then everybody has to sit down and agree, okay, this is how we're gonna do that. And you need someone to make sure that everyone stays with that plan. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and by the way, I think the VR thing I think is interesting. We we had a pro project recently that came in that uh, we were very interested in doing more VR. We've been doing some things, and the it was an interesting project. But the people who shot it didn't know what they were doing at all. And we looked through all the footage, and we realized that there's no way we could have this thing work. It would make us look bad. It would cost a lot of money. So I think VR is amazing. I think there's a lot of potential with VR, but it's something you can't just go into and say let me just hire any old director to shoot this and I can make it into VR because that's really not fixing it in post. You can't fix VR in post. It's gotta be done the right way by the right people from the very beginning and planned really carefully. In VR, I mean, in VR, it's a different kind of storytelling. You know, what you do in, in movies is we choose the frame. We tell you where to look and when to look there. Um, on the premise that you know we're good at that and we can you know pace things out the way you want and VR the beauty of VR and what makes it a great experience is being able to explore the space yourself and so how the two are going to work together I don't think anybody's really figured out how to use VR in in a real kind of cinematic storytelling way and that's the I mean I think so much of what we're talking about today is that all of these things that think about is as technical problems or technical solutions to it. These are all storytelling things, and the more intentional you are with 
choosing, you know, figuring out what your color correct is going to be as part of your storytelling, the, the more successful it will be. And I'm totally, I mean, with VR, I, like, I was totally blown away the first time I put on those Oculus things, and then and then when I and then the the Google Cardboard, and I started downloading. I was like, "Oh my God, this is unbelievable!" And you start downloading all the stuff that you can put on your iPhone. And if you haven't done it yet, like, go get one of those Google Cardboards and and watch um, Chris Milk's movie, which I always forget the name of, but it's kind of extraordinary. Um, but then you start looking at all the other stuff, and and we started to realize that it's not just the technology, like the storytelling is, is really, you have to incorporate the technology into this and you have to figure out how that technology is gonna serve the story and how the story is gonna take advantage of what's available there. Watch, so that there's like a bunch of docs where you're just kind of like, oh, I'm, it, it's it, in some ways to me like took away from the experience because it, you're suddenly standing with somebody, but you can't interact with them. So how is the technology and how is that really serving the story? It didn't, so I think that's so new and evolving, very exciting. Um, although I'm not sure, you know, like we talk about how we're losing the cinematic experience of a shared experience of watching a movie and we're going, talk about making it completely solo, headphones and hide yourself. Um, it's even more isolated than watching television. So. Next question. Hi, my name is Mina. I represent uh, Worldly Works, which is a post-DIY in New York. And uh, Tim, you mentioned that you're working on Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, and I know Jennifer's posting it, which is one of the most technically challenge, challenging uh, features out there, period. How are you implementing prep and post, and what are the challenges that you, uh, since starting with that project, you wish you would have changed and to share with us you know, well, some of it. I mean, the first, from an editorial standpoint, the first challenge I had to figure out is how are we going to cut this thing? You know, um, and with that took a lot of testing, uh, working with beta testing with Avid Software for a long time and working with different vendors, trying out a lot of different hardware. Um, you know, theoretically, Avid works at 4K, 60 frames a second, but in the real world, you know, the hardware can't really keep up with that. And so we did a lot of testing to find out the best hardware software configuration that would allow me to cut the film at 60. 120 was out of the question. But allow me to cut the film at 60 uh, in 3D, because if you're shooting, if you're cutting something shot native 3D for a 3D release, you have to cut it in 3D. No, so, um, so we had to compromise a lot on resolution. Uh, so I'm working HD side by side, which looks great, but it's you know it's not. That's that's the that's the configuration that we could do that would work. Uh, uh, hopefully, in the future, I can work at higher resolutions. So that's that was the first thing is just trying to, in addition to you know we have a whole there's a whole lab and screening room infrastructure in New York, which wouldn't work for us because. We're, all our dailies are at 120 frames a second. And even to get them to me, they have to go through a process of folding them down to 60, which is not simply every other frame. There are all kinds of different ways of blending frames, combining frames, different ways to generate different looks. So a lot of testing. Um, I, I don't have any regrets yet. Ask me when we're done. Um, you know, I wish, I, wish we, I wish I could work at that resolution all the time, but uh, I can't. I'm just, I'm 
real world. We have been able to watch the movie at 120, 3D, 4K, but we can't. I can't edit that way. It takes a lot of prep to be able to do that. And you know, we had to find some special servers which are not for cinema. We had to find. You know, we're working with these 4K Christie projectors, which are not cinema projectors. They're more kind of industrial, military projectors. Uh, took a massive amount of technical testing. Uh, to just to figure out a workflow that would work, and then how the how f we can coordinate with the lab to make sure we're able to match back, generate all the different things uh, that we need to do. And so far, we think it's going to work, but we've got a ways to go. Oh, I was on top of that. I would just say, ask a lot of questions, try a lot, try as much as you can testing, and if you can, build extra time in because things. We think things are going to work a certain way, especially with new technology, and you hope they work that way. But you know, drives still die, so you um, you know build in extra time when you're experimenting with something new or something new to you. Definitely build in extra time for the uh, trial period. I guess if there's something we could have done differently, we would have gotten the lab equipment earlier and done more testing earlier because a number of things wound up being harder than anticipated or took more labor intensive than than we had thought. Next question, Susan. Speaking of drives still die, now that uh, most films are being made digitally, um, are producers thinking enough about where their babies are going to remain once they're finished and, and how they're going to be preserved? And I know when you're putting a film together, it's like kind of the last thing you're thinking about is what's your preservation element going to be? So it's kind of nice to have a, a post-production supervisor worrying about that for you and helping to plan how you're going to archive your media, which if you plan it to do it as you're shooting, might be wiser than waiting until the end and, and finding out that an LTO tape is going to, you know, out of, uh, uh, out of spec in five years, you know, and maybe you should be doing a file-based preservation at the very beginning. Um, that's a question. What are you doing? <laughs> and don't you think that's a good idea? <laughs> well, I mean, it definitely is some, because technology is constantly evolving, and it, you're exactly right. It's like the thing that is acceptable today um, will be antiquated in some time in the near future. I mean, for television, <clears throat> those requirements are dictated by the network in terms of your, your deliverable. And right now, it's LTO5. You know, and then they take that and they uh, migrate it somewhere else. And I guess they have to keep migrating to new technology. Um, but yeah, it's like you no longer can deliver them a case of film <laughs> or, or you know, all of those things that you used to have as basic building blocks because everything has been file-based from the beginning. So it's, um, I guess that's a continuing discussion. Years ago, I worked on a, I cut a film for Robert Altman called Gosford Park. and. Uh, years later, uh, I was going to a college somewhere and they wanted to show that. And so we started looking to find a print and couldn't find a print. It turned out a whole bunch of prints had burned up in the fire on the lot at Universal, the ones that were stored away safe. And then a whole bunch of other prints had been destroyed because the, their paperwork all said the ones were safe. And it turned out there were two prints left in the world, one way up in Canada someplace uh, and we, nobody could find the IP or the IN. Um, it turned out those were not destroyed only because they were mislabeled. 
And so somebody eventually did find them, but that film came this close to just disappearing. Um, yeah, archiving, and especially now, like in in 40 years, who's gonna know what a JPEG is? You know, your hard, your hard drives are full of them. So, you know, file conversion and preservation, I think is gonna wind up being a big problem. How do you keep up with it? I think for the lower budget film. There I are some, or I mean, like Sundance is, is starting an archive of their select films um, and they're trying to archive them and preserve them. Corsese has done a lot of work on preserving a lot of, of films and moments in the Society of Lincoln Center, but it's not enough. You know, when, when uh, Duart went under, um, which was an independent lab that was here in, in the city for, I don't know, all of time, um, and when they, but they had a hell of a time. They had a warehouse full of negatives and, and all kinds of different film materials from movies from all of it, from over the years. And it was somebody's job to just try to contact the filmmakers from decades ago to say, hey, you know what? We've got your negative from the, do you want us to do anything with it? Sitting there languishing, so. A lot of stuff is getting lost. Um, and the more you can plan, I know for all of our movies at our company, we keep as best an archival version of the movie as we possibly can, but we're depending on whatever the most current technology is yeah. to keep the best um, uh, you know, archive of the movie and of all the materials that went into making it. Do I know if 20 years from now, if that stuff will be you know, it's still, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know what the technology will be and will it be completely outdated? I think for any independent production that, um, if you can, budget two backups and keep them in different places. Because studios have these warehouses that are supposed to be fire protected, but even they split them up into different warehouses these days. The labs do um, a service that you could, I imagine, take advantage of as a independent producer where you can ask them to do this upgrade so when LTO5 becomes antiquated, they will upgrade you to LTO6. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of a preservation plan. Um, I don't know, you know, is there a world in which lots of independent producers could come together and get a special rate going? Talk to Jay about it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I think it's important to try to follow the studio model as much as possible and try to keep up to speed with what the studios, because they've got whole divisions of people who are just thinking about this, right? So I always think like, oh, let's go check in with what, what's Universal doing at the moment and see what their best practice is and then, you know, try to mimic that as closely as possible. And some studios are still requiring the YCM deliverable, which is... Um, the 35 millimeter film deliverable that splits up into yellow, cyan, magenta, the colors, and that's the most secure thing that you can do that you don't have to migrate, but it's extremely expensive. I think we have time for one more question. Um, so this is a question about music, original music specifically. So um, I guess what happens to cues that are composed? And Peter, you were talking about you know you're completely switching the plot, you know, and having to shoot new scenes. So then, what happens when you've worked with a composer and they've you know scored to a certain cue and like worked really hard on it, and then you know, I mean, does it just disappear, or, or do you ask that composer to redo it um, in the end, last minute? You know, it, when it, 
I mean, when you're talking about a song, it's always a tricky thing having an original song written for a movie, um, uh, unless it's written before the movie's shot. And you know, if you're having something written in post, is it going to work? Is it not? I one of the when I first started in this business, I started working for a director named Jonathan Demi, and the f movie that the first movie we made when I was working with him was Philadelphia, and. Um, when we were working on the movie, he called Neil Young and asked him to write a song for the opening credits of the movie. And Neil sent in a song that was gorgeous, but was so haunting and beautiful that if we'd started the movie with that, it would have been over before. Everybody would have been weeping before the movie even started. <laughs> and he was like, God, you know, I, I thought Neil was going to write like, you know, Four Dead in Ohio. I thought it was going to be like a rocking anthem. And he wrote this, and what am I going to do? I can't call Neil Young and tell him. I don't want his song. Ah, uh, this is a nightmare. But then he was like, "Well, um, maybe we'll put it at the end of the movie, um, and I'll and I'll call Bruce Springsteen, and he'll write a song for the opening." Um, and so he did. And um, and think and he thought he would Bruce would write a big rock and ballad. He didn't either, but it, it worked. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, in both the songs, and but it's tricky because. You know, somebody writes something original, and 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 that's an artist writing with their own vision, and 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 hopefully it'll work. Hopefully, you're communicating with with that artist in in a way that that makes it work. But sometimes, it just won't work for the movie, and you have to and you have to choose something else. It's you know, it's these are careful choices that hopefully you can make um, in the in the prep part of the movie, or in the in the in the, when you're writing the movie, really, before you get into it. It's a, it's a similar thing with a composer. I mean, hopefully you're, you're working with a composer who's you've either worked with before or who um, you've, you're familiar enough with their music, you've talked about what the intention of what the score is going to be. Um, but there's, there's you know, uh, always going to be a lot of back and forth on the score. Um, and hopefully you don't, you don't get into a situation where it's just not working. Um, Composer doesn't just say, "Okay, here's your music." You know, you, you do some of them ideally. Do. Some, yes. <laughs> I, let me reword that. Composer shouldn't just say, "Here's your uh, music." Yeah. Um, you know, it, it is a creative collaboration. Now, with a song, you know, sometimes if you're asking a, going to a big rock band and asking them to do a song, it's often a case of be careful what you ask for because sometimes you get something and go. Just to be safe, you go, okay, we'll score all the way through the cards at the end and save this for the crawl, you know? <laughs> um, just to push it away from the movie. Sometimes you just don't know. And sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. But with score, yeah, that's ideally you work with the composer and he's you know, trying to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. And uh, you know, ultimately, you might not use a cue and maybe something just like it will show up in some other movie next year. Right. I say in television that happens a lot. If uh, you're working with a composer through the course of a series, we may get a cue that's not working or what we quite thought of for that spot, but it'll go into the toolkit to be brought out and it may work beautifully in something else for a different moment. So there's a way of taking the cues that were rejected at first and it becomes gold a little later down the line and that's always a fantastic thing. Yes, music editor is pretty crucial in that, actually taking cues that might have been rejected for earlier, or even the cues you use and taking the stems of those cues and reworking them and sometimes creating a whole new cue, and it's just fantastic. Or at least getting the bones of a cue together that then composer can use as a template to then create the new cue off of that. And that's crucial in a series because you don't have that much to work with in the beginning. So 
a music editor with a big toolkit of various instrumentals and things can start to craft a feel and a sound that you can use in your cuts so that you can get close enough to where a composer can then take that and use that as a springboard. It's a really big part of the process, especially early in a series. We have to wrap up, but um, in summary, and well, first of all, thank you so much, honored guests, these amazing panelists. Amazing, amazing information. Um, you know, I think collectively we all agree, just try to consult with post artists, pr producers, um, editors, visual effects supervisors, talk to vendors as well. People want to share information because they know down the line it's going to be harder for us. <laughs> so we want to try to make it easier for you in the beginning because the more you try to save early, you're going to spend more later, I think. Anyone have any other last minute advice besides test, test, test? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Thanks to PGA and Nice Shoes and Film Light and Sony. Thank you very much. <laughs>